our praise becomes effusive when it leaves the building and then is received in the world as the hands and feet of Jesus moving towards those whose lives have been shaken, moving towards them in love. And so we want to take a few moments, even in our worship, and pray for the people of Houston in southeast Texas. How many of you have family and friends in Houston, southeast Texas? A lot of us, a lot of us. Before we pray, uh, we've had calls come into the church this week, whether we have any connections or any place that we'd recommend uh, contributing to, if you haven't yet done that. We, we would give you three. Southern Baptists, uh, we are, our roots are Southern Baptists. The Southern Baptists are very well connected and networked in and around Houston and throughout Texas. And what I found interesting about the Southern Baptist website is that even National Public Radio, NPR, has listed them as a primary place to give. There's hope folks. There's hope. Houston's First Baptist Church is a, a church, a large church, but it has eight or nine sites around the city of Houston. They have people on the ground. They're in the shelters. They're doing a ton of work. I'd recommend even going on their website and listening to their pastor, Greg, talk about all the things that are going around in, on, in the city. Uh, very informative. And then Portlight is a place Jennifer Smith, our uh, missions pastor, discovered they are ministering specifically to families with children with special needs and focusing on families uh, that uh, need extra help getting back on their feet getting shelter so forth so would invite you to consider any of those places as uh, recommended places to contribute now let's take some time and pray for houston uh, i have just a number of things we'll walk through as we pray together and then we want to finish with this idea that the city of Houston would, would be able to pray some of these verses from Psalm 29. So let's pray. Father, we come to you as the sovereign God, the all-powerful one, the all-wise. Even though we don't understand. We first pray that you would be at work still to save lives. People whose lives are threatened by this flood, by anything uh, that it has their life in peril, we pray you'd send help and rescue to those who have no shelter right now, that haven't been able to find their way to a place of safety. So anyone who's in peril, Lord, would you please send help and rescue them? Father, we would pray for safety and strength for the first responders and the relief workers, that you'd give them physical rest and provision as well as emotional and mental strength for the things that they've seen. We want to pray, God, that you'd send supplies. It, we've been so encouraged by the outpouring of compassion and money from around the world, from around our country. Uh, but we pray that that money would get to the people who need it most. We pray you'd protect it from any sense of corruption or misuse. Father, we pray for the mental and e emotional healing of those who are currently displaced, who've lost everything. Please already begin to rebuild their minds and their hearts and focus them on moving forward. And as they grieve, Lord, just meet them there, but give them hope. We pray for financial provision for those who've lost everything, especially those who did not have flood insurance. Please, Jesus, send funds send help and resources help them to be even to have a vision of rebuilding pray for the children for students in school 
We know it's a priority to get the schools up and running for a sense of normalcy. We pray that that could happen. Be with teachers and administrators. Especially, Lord, we pray for families who've lost loved ones. Please help them. Give them comfort. Meet them in their grief. We want to pray that the churches in Houston who proclaim the name of Jesus would be ignited and united to serve their city, to serve the world, Lord. Give them what they need even from from churches around the world that we can help God to be very present in this situation by the church showing up. All these things, Lord, all the things in our heart, especially in this room for those people we do know and are connected to, we pray your help and provision and comfort in Jesus' name. We say together, amen and amen. Stephen Pyle's book of heroic failures tells the stories of people who've had epic failure in their life. For instance, there's Arthur Piedrick, British inventor who received 162 patents for inventions, but not one of them was ever picked up commercially. He had some amazing ideas. One of, uh, he designed a car that could be driven from the back seat. <laughs> uh, he, uh, he designed a golf ball that could be steered in flight. <laughs> he also designed a way to irrigate the deserts of the world by designing a massive system of giant pea shooters that would send showers of snowballs from the polar regions into the deserts. My favorite book, though, in Pi- uh, story in Pyle's book about failure is the story of an older woman in South London. Her cat got stuck up in a tree. She called the fire department. The fire department arrived with impressive time, rescued her cat. She was so overcome with Thanksgiving, she invited them in for tea. After the tea, they went back out to their truck, waving goodbye, backed out of the driveway. And ran over the cat. (laughs) Thing is, most failures are not so entertaining. Not, not that a dead cat is entertaining. I don't mean to imply that at all, but they're just usually not ending up in a book that's entertaining. Most failures hurt, and they're painful, and they leave scars. And especially those as followers of Jesus, especially those failures that are called moral failures, when we realize that we've disobeyed the one who loves us most. The one who, when he speaks, do this means don't hurt yourself. And when he says, or don't uh, do help yourself. And when he says, don't do this, he's really saying, don't hurt yourself. But we, we take things into our own hands and go our own way and we let them down. Who is God when we fail? Now, if I could reframe the question a little bit and bring it right at you. Where is God when we fail? Uh, sometimes our instinct is that we wish he was uh, 10 million miles away. We just, we just can't deal with 
with that right now. But is that really what we want when we fail? Do we want God to be 10 million miles away? Or, or do we want Him to be right in the mix with us, already picking us up and saying, we've got to start over. Who is God when we fail? Today we're going to look, as Janice has already read for us, at one of the epic failures in the Bible, Peter and Peter's denial of Jesus. Now, we've chosen this for two reasons. One, I couldn't think of a better follow to a series on the seven deadly sins when all we've been talking about the last eight weeks is our sins and failures. Are you ready to get to the forgiveness part? Are you ready to hear what God has to say when we fail? This is going to be the closing up of that series but we're building a bridge and we're going into the Mark series. And what better bridge could there be than understanding, as the video uh, told us, that when Mark writes, he's really mar writing the experiences and stories of Peter. So for the next 10 weeks, we are really going to be listening to the, the, the experiences of Jesus as told from an epic failure. It's a great bridge for us to walk over today and ask who is God when we fail? And hear that question answered by Jesus himself. We don't have to guess when he restores Peter. So let's tell the Peter story, and then let's answer the question, who is God when we fail? Peter was personally called by Jesus to follow him. And in fact, he became one of the inner circle. Peter, James, and John spent the most face time with Jesus. They had front row seats to hear his authoritative teaching, to see his miracles, and to see the private side of a very public life. It's Jesus in, or Peter in Mark that's telling us, hey, one of Jesus' habits was to get up early in the morning to have solitude and go away and pray. We get glimpses that no one else would see because Peter has lived so closely with Jesus. On the last night that Peter and Jesus were together in this reality, Jesus pulls Peter and the disciples aside and he says, I'm going to be betrayed, I'm going to be beaten, I'm going to be tortured and crucified. But on the third day, I'm going to rise from the dead. And what I need from you, Peter, and all of you disciples is courageous leadership. I need the movement to advance and it will advance because of your courageous leadership. So Peter, as was his habit, spoke first, and he said, Jesus, you can count on me. I won't let you down. Those guys, not me. In fact, Jesus, I'll die for you. Jesus, knowing Peter's heart, said, Peter, before the rooster crows the second time, before the morning, you will have denied me three times. Well, the events unfold as Jesus said they would. He was betrayed. He was given into the hands of the authorities. There was a scuffle outside of the Garden of Gethsemane, and Peter gets a hold of a sword and slices off a temple servant's ear. But Jesus, I don't know, picks it up, puts it back on, and says, no, the kingdom of God is not advanced by personal violence. Then Jesus is carried over to the Sanhedrin, the Jewish high court, where he's questioned and beaten. And the rest of the disciples had followed along, but they're now out in the courtyard trying to understand what's going on. And we pick it up in Peter's words through Mark. 
While all this was going on, Peter was down in the courtyard. One of the chief priest's servants' girls came in and seeing Peter warming himself there, looked hard at him and said, You were with the Nazarene, Jesus. He denied it. I don't know what you're talking about. He went out on the porch. A rooster crowed. The girl spotted him and began telling the people standing around, He's one of them. He denied it again. And after a little while, the bystanders brought it up again. You've got to be one of them. You've got Galilean written all over you. Peter was from Galilee and Jesus was from Galilee. Now Peter got really nervous and swore. I never laid eyes on this man you're talking about. Just then, the rooster crowed a second time. Peter remembered how Jesus had said, before a rooster crows twice, you'll deny me three times. And he collapsed in tears. Now this, this isn't just weakness in a pressured moment. This is a spiritual devastation, a collapse of epic proportions. Just a month earlier, Jesus was asking his disciples in Matthew 16, who's everyone saying I am? And they're giving all the answers, you know, John the Baptist, Moses, Elijah. But no, Peter said, no, you're the Christ, the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, Peter, you've got it. You are right. And on that confession, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. And at this point, he, everyone called Peter Simon. Jesus says, Simon, son of John, your name is now Peter. Jesus was often fond of giving people nicknames. And he renamed Simon Peter, which means rock. So he built it on Peter's confession. And Peter's one of the rocks of the church. But on the worst night of Jesus' life, Peter disowns Jesus. Not once, but three times before the morning. Some rock. All the other events transpired as Jesus said they would. He was crucified. He was buried. On the third day, he rose from the dead and people saw him alive. Now, if I could interject something here, you've got to decide if that's true. Do you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus rose from the dead? Is there any good reason why you shouldn't believe the eyewitness testimony of men like Peter, who, as Janice read, was also crucified for Jesus, crucified upside down because he didn't want to dishonor Jesus by being crucified in the same way. Peter, crucified upside down, gave his life for this witness. You have to decide if it's true. If it is true, then I've got news for you. And forgive me, I get excited about this. Easter means every Sunday is Easter. Easter means life conquers death. Easter means mercy triumphs over judgment. Easter means the curse of sin is broken. That Jesus became sin for us and like a giant white towel soaked up all the sins of the world, yours and mine, and says, you're clean. And that nothing now can separate us from the love of Christ and we will not be separated from Jesus. Easter means that the power of death 
is broken. And that means that nothing here, no matter how bad that happens to you, is not the last word. And it means on the poorest day of your life. And what's the poorest day of your life? The poorest day of your life is when you die, when you can no longer keep yourself alive. On the poorest day of your life, Easter means it's promotion day. Easter means 153 large ones. Peter wasn't sure what to do. He wasn't sure how to respond to the resurrection. Jesus had told him to go back home to Galilee, wait for him there. Peter has mouths to feed, family to take care of, so he goes back to his original occupation. He's out on the water. The art of fishing on the Sea of Galilee was that uh, they'd be about 100 yards out with nets casting them around, and there'd be spotters on the high cliffs around the shore looking for dark splotches schools of fish and they point the the boats to them over there over there and jesus told them to cast in a certain place and they caught 153 large fish they uh, recognize that it's jesus and there's two things to know about this catch and release here the first thing to know is that it's a flashback the second thing to know is it's a flash forward the flashback is that when Jesus called Peter to follow him in Luke chapter 5, this same thing happened. They'd fish all night. This guy yells in from the shore, hey, cast your nets on the other side of the boat. And they catch this catch of fish that nearly breaks the net and sinks the boat. They run in out of the water. Jesus had already met Peter, but Peter falls down before him because now he understands that this man is related to God. And he falls down before him and he says, go away from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. But Jesus says to Peter, from now on, Peter, you will catch women and men for God. Follow me. This story in John 21 is a flashback where Jesus is taking Peter back to the very beginning. I told you to follow me and I meant it. It's also a flash forward because everything that happens in this account is designed for a conversation that Jesus has to have with Peter. I mean everything. In the text in John 21, it says that Jesus has built a fire, but the Greek there is very interesting. It's not just any kind of wood fire. It's specifically a charcoal fire. He's cooking fish over a charcoal fire. Now, why is that important? Because the last time that phrase was used was back in John 18, when Peter is in the courtyard warming his hands, and that girl comes up and starts talking to him. Guess what kind of fire that was? That was a charcoal fire. The same phrase. Jesus wants to take Peter back, not only to the very beginning of the call, but he especially wants to take him back to the courtyard to the sights and sound of denial. Not only that, why do you think Jesus asked him the same question three times? Is he rubbing his nose in it? Heck yeah. Why do you think that each time he asks the question, he doesn't call Peter Peter, he calls him Simon, son of John? It's like being scolded by your mom, right? Using your middle name. <laughs> this is a serious, serious, well-designed moment. 
And this conversation that they're about to have is the answer to the question, who is God when we fail? Now, I want to put a metaphor on this so that you'll see how Jesus is going to work and answer this question. In the Old Testament, it often talks about being sick with sin. Our hearts become sick. When we do the seven deadly sins, you know, sick with envy, with gluttony, with pride, with anger, with lust, all those sins. And we've been weighing on them these past few weeks. Our hearts are understanding how sick with sin we are. And what our hearts need is a healer. And Jesus is that one who would come, that promised one, the doctor, who would come and heal our hearts of sin. I want to press the metaphor even a little more specifically. Are you still with me? I want to say that Jesus is the surgeon. He is the surgeon of sin. What I mean by that, in this conversation, it's exactly what Jesus is doing. He's operating on Peter's heart. Where does every surgery we begin? It begins with the cutting. He's going to open up Peter. He's going to just cut him open. It hurts. Jesus is walking Peter back through the denials. He wants him to admit reality, to take responsibility, to understand what he's done. He's hurt the relationship. And Peter, repentance is not only the guilt and the shame and the cutting, but it's not anything less than that. It's much more, but it's not less. And repentance always begins with owning the behavior. Owning what's happened and taking responsibility. So there's a cutting. There's the cutting. But if that's all it was, and sometimes the church is accused, because, and because of the way we act, we always think, oh, repentance is only guilt and shame. No, there's much more. But it always begins there. But we don't cut a person open and say, okay, infection, tumor, come out. Jesus could do that if he wants. Not a, <laughs> I mean, they have to go in. And you have to find the source of the problem. What's really going on. You have to get the root of it. And that's what Jesus is doing with the question. Do you love me? More than these. Do you love me? Do you love me? I find the question interesting. Because Jesus does not go after specific behavior. Right? What did Peter actually do? Well, he lied. And he was a coward. Jesus doesn't mention any of that behavior. He doesn't say, Peter... Do you promise not to lie anymore? Yes? Okay. Peter, do you promise not to chicken out again? Yes? Okay. None of that. He does not go after the behavior. Why? Because he wants to go after the root of the behavior. What's underneath it. And how does he do that? By asking the question this way. Peter, do you love me more than these? We've been talking about sin all throughout this series and the seven deadly sins as that having no awe of God. And so you take him off of the ruling place of your heart, set him aside, and pursue the things that we want to pursue. The things, and they're often good things, that we think we need for self-preservation and uh, happiness. And that's what sin is. It's taking Jesus and saying, Jesus, I, you know, I, lo I love you, and you know, I'm glad you're in my life, but would you just stay over there? Stay over there in the margin. I'll call you when I need you. And I'm going to go and do this. Okay? That's sin. That's the essence of sin. It's the root cause of everything we do. It's, it's never about behavior. Behavior are symptoms. And, and of course, God cares about that. I don't want to mislead us in any way. But he's always more concerned about what's underneath it. 
and why it's happening. And he goes to the root, and it's always about love. And I, I, I think that's why he asked the question, the first question this way, do you love me more than these? Commentators are always asking, well, what does he mean there? More than the other disciples? More than the fish? And the answer is yes. <laughs> Everything. Do you love me more than anything else in your life? At that moment, Peter did not. He would have said he loved Jesus, but not most. Not more than his self-preservation. You see, the surgeon, he cuts, and then he goes in, and he goes for the root cause, calls it out. Do you love me, Peter? And then the healing begins. How does the surgeon sew it back up and provide the healing? Well, this is very interesting. We see this in verse uh, 17. The third time, he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Jesus is pushing for this. Pushing for what? This. Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? Hurt. It's a strong word there. It literally means to grieve and mourn. And it's usually used in public context, which means Peter probably cried again. He was devastated by what he'd done. And Jesus wanted to push him there. He wanted to push him to godly sorrow because that is the expulsive power here. That's how the healing begins, when there's godly sorrow. What's godly sorrow? Well, I like how Paul wrestles with it in a, in a letter that he wrote to Corinth uh, in 2 Corinthians. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation, life, transformation, and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. It doesn't affect the lasting change. So what's the difference between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow and why is jesus always pushing in our failures to get us to godly sorrow here's the difference worldly sorrow is the sorrow that comes into our lives when we fail and when we mess up but our life gets wrecked and we're sorry about the consequences we're sorry about how it impacts our life where it's self-pity that's worldly sorrow godly sorrow is when we're sorry about the relationship how we've hurt god and, and how we haven't kept up the relationship. We've walked away from it. We haven't loved him most. And that's godly sorrow when we're upset about the relationship rather than upset just about our personal consequences. Worldly sorrow, godly sorrow. Are we upset about ourself or are we upset because we've hurt the Savior? That's the difference. This brings transformation and salvation. This brings when things get better, you'll be back doing it again. Now, let me illustrate this where I see this a lot. It's in the realm of marriage. Here's how it goes. A wife comes in, sets an appointment, we talk. She says, I am so fed up with my husband's behavior. He doesn't listen to me. He doesn't do the things I've asked him to do. He doesn't care for me. I've had it. I know God hates divorce, but I don't know how much longer I can do this. Something needs to change. It's usually not more than a few days later, the husband's in my office. Often we sit down together, and he says, I had no idea that my behavior was impacting your life this way. I'm really sorry. Now let me hit the pause button. There are two kinds of husbands in the world. The first kind of husband is saying that he's really sorry because he knows that if this keeps going in a certain direction, his life is going to get really messed up. And so he's about changing anything he needs to change so his life won't get messed up. 
And the other kind of husband is the kind of husband who begins to really understand how much he's hurt his wife and how he's let down the relationship and the vows that he's made. When a husband sees the sorrow of his wife, there's repentance and hope for change. If a husband only sees that his life is about to be messed up, he will only change to the degree he has to to get his life back. And do you know what? They'll be in my office again in six months. And you know what I'll say to the husband? Repent! Worldly sorrow. Only cares about his hurt. Godly sorrow. Deeply driven to change by her hurt. What Jesus is doing with Peter is pushing him to the point of seeing how he's impacted the relationship. And that's why he's asking, do you love me? You see, this is the truth. Are you listening? When we fail God, and and we kind of push him away, and there's this part that wishes he was 10 million miles away, he's never moved. We've moved. We move away from him. Do you know what kind of God we have? Here's the kind of God we have, that when we fail him, the first thing on his mind is, do you love me? And he's already working a plan of restoration. Do you love me? How do we move back towards God when we fail him and let him down? When we're overcome with our seven deadly sins? Two things. They're in the text. The first question that Jesus asks is, do you love me more than these? Desire. We need to go back home to God. We need to start inviting him back into our life and everything we do, every moment, all our habits. And we also need to invite him back to special times like Jesus did when you just, you and the Father, you sit down and you read his word or prayer, talk to him. You need to get him back in your life. In other words, you need to go home again and bring your life back home. Here's how you know that you know God. When you fail, when you sin, when you mess up again, your instinct, because you know God, is to go back home. Start again. You know that God is grace. You know, if there's an epic failure in the New Testament, it's Peter. The epic failure of God's people in the Old Testament is David. Here's David, king, man after God's own heart. But he was an adulterer, a murderer, and yeah, the world's worst parent. And the Psalms are full of David being woken up, you know, being cut open, identify the problems, the godly sorrow, and the Psalms are just full of him coming back home. Psalm 32, Psalm 51, all these songs where he writes poetry, even acrostics, these love poems, he always goes back to desiring God. I don't know, his heart, his heart had this gospel elastic around it, that when he woke up to his sin, he would just snap back saying, oh yeah, God loves me. Do you love me? Of course I love you, God. 
That is someone who knows God. That is the instinct each one of us has. Folks, I want to remind you that Jesus did die on the cross. And from that cross, he said to the world, it is finished. And what that means is that he paid for every sin, every failure, every mistake, every intentional rebellion. He paid for it all. The only one holding on to it still is you. It's gone between you and God. And you are forgiven. And he's prepared under that cross the charcoal fire. And he's welcoming you back to a conversation. He's prepared a meal. And he says, do you love me? Some of you walked in. Oh, I, I want to say the other thing, desiring God, the other thing quickly, is that he wants you to get back in the kingdom. Feed my sheep, feed my lambs, feed my sheep. And then at the end, follow me. You know, we start over again. Just because you've had this failure, go back home, and then we start working in the kingdom again. You are restored to ministry, Peter. And on we go. You know, keep the main event the main event. The main event is not your sin. The main event is what God does with your sin. And so on we go. Advancing the kingdom of God. Some of you walked in here this morning dragging the, the burdens of sin in. Whether it's that one sin that you keep doing a hundred times and you can't stop. Or whether it's that one sin that's been a hundred times more powerful at wrecking your life than anything else you could have imagined. But you've come in. What you need to hear is Jesus is inviting you to the fire right now and walking you through it all but he's prepared a meal for you and he's saying look I built the fire in the shadow of the cross and the meal is for you do you love me he wants you back he wants to be home with you and he wants you back in his work advancing his kingdom some of you walked in here this morning You've never really answered the call of God on your life. Jesus says to every one of us, follow me. You've never answered him directly, but you've been having that itch in your life. I mean, you, you don't know the love of the Father and you don't show the love of the Father in your life, but you've been itching for it, to be part of something bigger than yourself, to have a relationship that satisfies deep down those longings in your heart. I want you to know that Jesus has built a fire for you. And he's welcoming you to come and share in this meal that he's prepared. And he wants you to ask, answer his question, do you love me? Easter means 153. Wow! Now, <laughs> scholars have debated for centuries what that means and why Mark goes to such detail to tell it was 153 large ones. Was it just Peter uh, being a braggy fisherman? What's going on here? Augustine, one of my mentors, one of my favorite from the 4th century, he said, well, it's simple. It's the Ten Commandments plus the seven gifts of the Spirit in the New Testament. You add up the digits of seven, 17. When you add those together, 17, 1 plus 2 plus 3 plus 4 plus 5 plus 6 equals 153. <laughs> <laughs> wrong, Augustine. Thank you for playing. I love you, I respect you, but you're wrong. Okay, there's Jerome. Jerome, who translated the Greek New Testament into Latin and changed the world, put the Bible into the hands of every person who could read Latin. Jerome said, well, it's simple. 153, there's 153 different kinds of species of fish in the Sea of Galilee. That means that Jesus is welcoming all nations of the world to come and know him. 
Jerome, awesome, I love you, wrong. Do you know what 153 large fish means? Jesus is a good spotter. And he's been watching all of your life to bring you to this moment where no matter your sins, seven deadly in all, he's built a fire for you under the shadow of a cross where he said it's finished. And now he invites you to a meal to answer his question. Do you love?